This is Word and the Wild, the one-year Bible adventure with friends. My name is Owen. I'm your host and your guide. And together, we are on a 12-month journey as a podcast plus community where we read the Bible for ourselves, but not by ourselves. This is week five, my friend. We are about to cross the 30-day mile marker on our little adventure. And this week, Job shows us something amazing about God, no thanks to his friends. And God makes good on a promise that's a long time coming. Let's dig in. Hello and welcome in. And a special welcome to our Word and the Wild Plus community members. It's their support of this nonprofit endeavor that makes space for all of us here on this Bible reading adventure. And their contributions inside our dedicated online community are making it just a blast. It was all about Job this week and our live stream Q&A. Uh, inside the Word in the Wild Plus community was lit. <laughs> uh, some folks even said it was maybe the most helpful conversation they'd ever had about Job. Uh, if that sounds like something you'd like to jump into, get into those conversations as well as enjoy other member benefits like our daily reading tracker, uh, all the backgrounds and other conversations that happen in there, other bonus content as well, then you could join the Word in the Wild Plus community for yourself. You can learn more about it in the show notes or over at wordandthewild.com. Well, speaking of Job, hey, let's jump right into it. Let's pick up where his story uh, left off last time, and then we'll get into the next chapter, the next episode in the journey. It's all about Exodus. Right now, let's talk about Job. You know, when you're walking through a time of heartbreak and suffering, it can feel like a long, meandering path through the woods. And, you know, the kind of path that's lined with thick trees on every side that you can't see through. And and there are just few landmarks along the way. And it all leaves you feeling confused, claustrophobic, disoriented. Am I making progress, you wonder? Am I backtracking? I mean, am I moving at all? And the middle part of the book of Job feels a lot like that. (laughs) You've got Job and his friends, and they banter back and forth for a long time with all these philosophical debates and theoretical ideas, and it all just makes your head spin. And then meanwhile, there are these big questions on the table and we're anxious to resolve them, and and we don't have time for all the drama in there, right? That's how it feels. As a story, I have to say, the book of Job is masterful. At times, it's hard to read, but the storytelling is just top-notch. It manages to create some of the same feelings of frustration, confusion, and desperation in us as the viewer as it does in Job himself as he walks through the story. I mean, that's just greatness. And just like Job, as we read, we feel unsettled and ready for it all to be over. And I think I've been through seasons in my life like that, and I'm sure you have too. Now, in last week's episode, we walked through the three main characters in Job's story. You've got Job, of course, and then you've got Satan and the Lord. Those three main characters uh, drive the story. So this week... 
as your guide here on this Bible adventure, I'm going to try to offer up some key plot points to keep in mind to help you navigate this dense woods that are the book of Job as we wrap them up this week. Um, Usually I try to be a little more vague, but Job is a tough one, and so I'm just going to try to give you some footing as we push through those woods together. Two, Two big things to keep in mind. The first one is the big accusation in the book, and the second thing are three big questions that drive the whole story. Now, the big accusation, it comes from none other than that accuser himself. His name uh, is Satan. And we talked about this a little last week, but in the beginning of the story, Satan throws out this brutal challenge that's aimed at the very heart of God. Because remember, Satan can't uh, go head to head against God. And so he does the things a, a, a saboteur or, a, I mean, a terrorist would do. He goes for what God loves and tries to inflict maximum pain with it. And so he accuses God. In so many words, he says, God, you're only worth loving because of what you do for the people you love. If you stop spoiling people, they will stop loving you. And that accusation it hits hard and it it forms kind of the, the backdrop for the story. That's the big question on the table. And, and there are two others that go with it. And these are the, the three big questions, let's say, that really uh, come up often in the story and give it its, its structure. Those three questions go something like this. Number one, if God is all-powerful and good, then why do good people suffer? That's the first one. Second, where do we go for information about God? How do we explain God's actions? That's number two. And number three, is the Lord worth knowing for who he is and not just what he gives? And that's the third question. And as as Job's life falls apart, those three questions swirling all around us, at that point in the story, Job's friends enter the conversation. And I put friends in air quotes. <laughs> because as those friends come into the conversation, that's where things in the book really start to unravel. When I think of Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, I mean, there's a quartet if ever there were one. When I think of these guys and their their advice to Job and their time with Job, my memory drifts back to my own grandpa's workshop. As a kid, my grandpa's workshop was just, I mean, it was a magical place. He built race cars and his shop was amazing. It smelled like old grease and every piece of equipment in that shop could either burn you or cut off your finger. (laughs) In other words, it was the coolest place ever. But one of the things I remember about Grandpa's shop was a big sign on the wall. The sign originally came from his dad's shop. So we're talking about my great-grandpa. It was an old-school sign. It had a white background, and it had red hand-painted letters on it that spelled out this phrase. God helps those who help themselves. But God pity you if you're caught helping yourself around here. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time I think of it. That saying, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You know, that's something that you call folk wisdom, right? It's these homespun ideas about God 
They get passed around on Facebook. Uh, they're emblazoned on T-shirts and sold to us as Hobby Lobby art. <laughs> it's sayings like, when God closes a door, he opens a window, you know, or uh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, right? These are these are folk wisdom. You won't find any of these gems of folk wisdom in the Bible. They just get passed around and eventually kind of get passed off as fact and leak into our thinking about who God really is and how God operates. Now, how does this tie in with Job's friends? Well, Job's friends deal in folk wisdom. That's that's their that's their bag. They take ideas about God that have been passed around and accepted as truth, but actually have very uh, very little resemblance to the reality of who God really is or what God's really like. You know, it's one thing to hang a funny folk sign in your workshop. <laughs> it's another thing to try to use ideas like that to explain why God allows suffering in our world or even more personally suffering in the life of a friend. But that's exactly what Job's friends are trying to do. And that's a key to understanding all that they have to say. I mean, at, at times in the book of Job, it seems like his friends explain God well. I mean, they get little bits and pieces that, that sound right. But in the end, they, they, they wind up way off base. Uh, and at, in the very end of the story, God, God expresses this deep unhappiness with Job's friends because they misrepresent him and what he's like. So as we read through Job and we navigate those friends, we've got to keep in mind that they don't get it quite right. Now, here's a quick rundown of these friends and their folksy opinions on why Job suffers, okay? First, you've got Eliphaz. Uh, Eliphaz tells us that his source for wisdom uh, comes from his own personal mystical experiences. That's right. Uh, it's in You find it in uh, chapter 4 in Job. That's, that's his version of, of wisdom about God, and in his version of how God works— you could sum up his folksy wisdom with the phrase, you reap what you sow. That's a life as. Then there's Bildad. Bildad looks to wisdom passed down from his ancestors for his opinions about God. It's, it's an appeal to tradition. And in his view, Job shouldn't worry too much about what he's going through because in his, in his mind, it all works out in the end. That's his folk wisdom. Then you've got Zophar, Zophar is a guy who draws on common sense and personal experience. And for him, his opinions about God center around the idea of God as more like, like karma. You know, it's, it's, it's what goes around comes around. And then the last one to enter the conversation is a guy named Elihu. And he gets his wisdom from his own conscience and from his general observations about God. And uh, he gets some things right. Um, but in his view, Job is suffering. Well, it's, it's for your own good, Job, uh, it, to keep Job from living an immoral life, uh, and which sounds good, but it's also wrong uh, because the whole book is based on the fact that Job is this uh, man of integrity uh, who is blameless in God's eyes. So Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, folk wisdom, all four, they sound smart, but in the end, what they say doesn't really line up with reality. And then just when you think you can't handle any more 
of these guys giving Joe a piece of their mind they can't afford to lose. Finally, at last, God himself shows up and the entire story pivots. That's a refreshing pivot as all that folk wisdom disappears from view. In Job 38 verse 1, the whole story turns on a simple phrase, and that phrase simply is, the Lord answered Job. Keyword, the Lord. This is a huge, huge moment. Let me explain what I mean. For the entire length of this really long conversation between Job and his friends, they all give their opinions about God and the why behind Job's suffering. And every time they mention God, they use a Hebrew word that's that's the word Elohim. And there's nothing wrong with them using that word. It's fine. Elohim means nothing more or less than just a generic term that means deity or, or God. It's a term that can refer to the one true God, the creator God, the main character of our story. It could also just refer to kind of a generic idea about God, uh, kind of like when we talk about uh, the man upstairs, you know, it's it's generic, it's faceless, it's folksy, it's a way to talk about you know, the big guy in the sky, you know, it's, it's God, but it's not our God, the God we're getting to know in the story. And then the Lord shows up. And that term, Lord, when you see it set off in all caps in your chrono Bible, or in most Bibles for that matter, that that word is not a generic term for God. It's the creator God's personal name, Yahweh. The Lord is Yahweh. He is a person, not a human. He's a person. And that means he has feelings. He has desire. He has will. This is the God who creates, who promises, who pursues his plan throughout history. This is the creator God, the one true God, the Lord. He's the one Satan accused of not being worth loving for who he is and and not just for what he gives. And, and he arrives here in Job to set the record straight. No more hearsay, no more opinions. Yahweh, the Lord, shows up, shows himself, and speaks truth. Refreshing. We've been waiting so long for this. And Job's response to what the Lord has to say? Well, the response says it all. At the end of the book, at the end of the story, Job makes a simple, just profound, amazing statement at the end of all he's been through. He he responds to the Lord himself. It's in Job 42, verse 5. Listen to this. It's short, and it's, it's, it's incredible. Job says, I only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Thanks to his long walk through intense suffering, Job no longer relies on second-hand accounts of God. He's experienced Yahweh for himself. He has seen the Lord with his own eyes. And the question on the table, is the Lord worth knowing for who he is and not just what he gives? Job would answer yes. 
And through all of this, we discover something fascinating about God and, and what God considers to be the highest good. God, Yahweh, <laughs> considers to be the highest good. And while folk wisdom makes God out to be some kind of cosmic umpire in the sky, calling balls and strikes, making everything work out like some kind of distant enforcer of karma, what goes around comes around, we discover that's actually not God's priority for himself at all. It turns out that God's highest good is for Job, and I would say for you and for me, for us, to not merely hear about God secondhand, but for us to know him and to experience him for ourselves. And so, if God truly is good, then God will do whatever he can to persuade you that a personal relationship with him is your top priority. That is the goodness of God at work. So even if God has to allow you or me or Job to walk a winding path of suffering through those woods to get to the place where, where we see the value in a relationship with him, God's going to do it. Suffering presents opportunity opportunity for clarity about God and closeness with God in ways that nothing else can. And that is the story of Job. The God who wants to be known, Yahweh, he doesn't leave us to some homespun folk wisdom, mythical experiences and tradition or or some kind of unreliable impressions of common sense. No, God moves to show up and show himself to the ones he loves. And often it's these seasons of suffering that provide God that dark and disillusioning background that he needs to really shine. And God may be silent, but he's never still. He's there waiting for the perfect moment to break the silence and move the story forward, forward toward clarity about who he is, confidence in his plan, and closeness with his heart. And that's where we go next in the story. We enter back into the world of the children of Israel. Joseph and Job. These are two guys we've met so far, and they are two guys who understand what it's like to wait for God's heart to become clear inside of a story filled with pain and suffering. You know who else has a thing or two to say about waiting out tough times? Well, it's the children of Israel. Our walk through the side story of Job filled in some time for us between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. But for the generations between Joseph and his brothers, that silent gap between Genesis and Exodus stretched on for years and years and years, centuries, in fact. And that is more than enough time for ignorance and despair to set in. The ignorance is on the part of the Egyptians. The despair is on the part of the Israelites. Let's talk about those Egyptians. See, when we ended Genesis, remember Joseph? He's a national hero to the Egyptians. But that was a long time from now, and Joseph's loyalty 
and the wisdom he displayed for his God have long been forgotten. There's a new regime that's come to power in Egypt, and with it comes a new and cynical view of Israel's large and powerful family. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it picks up the story. It says this, A new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if a war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. They will escape from this country. So, the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. That's Exodus 1, 8 through 11. And the despair is on the part of the people of Israel. Exodus tells us again in chapter 1 that the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar, make bricks, and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. That's chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And if that isn't bad enough, God continues to grow this chosen people, and it, it paints this dark, deadly target on their back as God blesses them. And the next verse in chapter 1 reveals a twisted plot on the part of the Egyptian king. It says, Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders, and they allowed the boys to live too. In a devilish outburst, Pharaoh resorts to vigilante violence to solve this Hebrew problem, as he would call it. Chapter 1, verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Throw every newborn baby boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. This dark turn in the story of God's people isn't a total surprise. After all, God did predict that this would happen to Abraham long ago, but no one could have predicted just how prejudiced and cruel the 400 years God had predicted what his, his, Abraham's children would be in uh, a place of slavery, how cruel and, and prejudiced that time could be. When Pharaoh throws out that term Hebrew once again to describe the descendants of Israel. Uh, we've seen this before and we've we've made note of it. It's not exactly a compliment. It's, it's a term that highlights that you aren't one of us, that you're not from around here. You're immigrants, strangers, foreigners. You don't belong here. And in this case, the Hebrew status as outsiders becomes a threat to an insecure Pharaoh. In the political landscape of the time, he felt he needed to crack down on anyone who might threaten national sovereignty and his own political power, perhaps. And so the people God had chosen to be a blessing to all nations of the world now find themselves viewed as a curse, 
in the mind of a powerful, oppressive king. That in the middle of this tense and tragic time, the God who has been silent and still for so long arrives back in the story. God makes his move, and it's a surprising one. It starts with a baby. (laughs) Yeah, and through that baby, God reveals himself in response to the suffering and misery of his people. In our story, we've met God the creator. We've seen God the arbiter of right and wrong. We've also seen God the the loyal friend and, and faithful companion of men like Joseph and Job. This week, we are about to meet God who is the rescuer and defender of the oppressed. And by the time this episode ends, we will never forget this encounter with the fierce God who is the Deliverer. And just like that, we're ready to hit the trail. Word and the Wild is a one-year Bible adventure with friends. All you Word and the Wild Plus community members, I'll be seeing you in the wild this week, our private online community space. Everybody else, don't worry, you don't have to be a stranger. Subscribe to this podcast and follow Word and the Wild on Facebook. We'll get into some interaction there. Love to see you. Don't be a stranger. Word and the Wild is a Linehouse community. It's part of the Linehouse Community Network, which is a nonprofit organization with a mission to bring neighbors together to promote awareness, appreciation, and understanding of the Bible because friendship and God's Word change lives and change cities. Word in the Wild is presented by Lumavaz and the Lumavaz Podcast Network. Many thanks to our friends there. And with that, we are out. My name is Owen. I'm your host and your guide. And until next time, I'll see you out there on the trail in the Word and the Wild. Have a good one.